you're flipping there to Ephesians chapter 1, a kind of re- short review from last week, we, we commented on the redemption. There were three things specified. Redemption, forgiveness, and grace that God provides all those who believe. And we also talked about how uh, the Bible makes a distinction. Jesus himself makes a distinction between people who believe, those who believe, and those who don't believe. And for all those who do believe, you have the assurance of salvation. You have the Holy Spirit in your life, the forgiveness of sins. Um, and as Jason pointed out, the Spirit seals us until, as Paul puts it later on in Ephesians, till the day of redemption. And I just want to just want to say it again, just so that everybody understands. You have assurance of salvation and the forgiveness of sin in this life and the next because of the Holy Spirit in your life. The, the, the Spirit guarantees our eternal salvation, our forever inheritance that Paul is going to speak about again in the first half, after the first couple verses, the introduction. The first half of Ephesians was this big run-on sentence. Guess what the last half of Ephesians is, for chapter 1? It's another big run-on sentence. In the Greek, there's like only three sentences in this whole chapter. It's pretty incredible. Um, it, but I, I want to point out again why I think that's significant and important. Because this is all one thought for Paul. It's, it's all connected. Uh, so the first half, Paul was just reflecting on the glorious blessings that are there in Christ for everyone who believes. Man, what, a, what an incredible uh, list that he, was, he has gone through. And now the second half of this first chapter, Paul starts to pray a prayer for the people who believe. This is Paul's prayer. Now, I, I think that we would do well to have this kind of model to our prayers. I don't know that this is prescriptive and that our prayers have to follow this exact example. But man, we should hear this morning and be encouraged in our prayer life to pray like Paul. As we read these next uh, few verses, I hope you'll notice the three distinct parts. Let's see if we can identify them as we read through. They, they're, they're thanksgiving, intercession, and praise. Three big parts to Paul's prayer here. So follow along with me. I'm in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. I'm reading from the ESV version this morning. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places." far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray, ask God's blessing on his word. Lord, this this is your word. We as Christians believe it to be that, every word of it comes straight from you. It is breathed out by you and it is profitable for us in all kinds of different ways. I pray today, Lord, that we would not only see how Paul prayed and begin to implement those things in our own prayer life and in our hearts, God, but to remember 
that we can even come and pray at all because you are above all things. Everything lies under your feet. And so we're appealing, we're crying out, we're worshiping the creator of all. Thank you for this perspective. Drive that into us today as we continue to look at your word. In Christ's name, amen. So right off the bat, in verse 15 and 16, we see the first part of Paul's prayer, and that's thanksgiving. In verse 16, Paul says he's constantly thanking God for this group of believers at Ephesus. And he tells them why in verse 15. He says, because of their faith in the Lord Jesus and because of their love towards the saints. Two reasons, Paul says, for giving thanks, because of their faith and their love. Now, these are words that are often used in Christian culture. Even in our more secular culture, these words get tossed around. And so just want to make sure that we're all on the same page when we talk about these things. Uh, Faith is a confident trust and reliance upon Jesus as the only means by which one can be saved. That's, that's what it is. We're putting our faith, our trust, our reliance 100% on Jesus Christ in order to be right with God. Ephesians 2, in the next chapter, Paul, uh, in verse 8, Paul lists faith as something that's not even of our own doing. Faith isn't even something that we muster up on our own. It's not a work of ourselves. Instead, how does he, how does he say it? He says it's a gift of God. So faith is the initial and constant dependence on Jesus for a right standing before God. That's what our faith, that's what we're talking about when Paul talks about faith here. He's, he's praising God, thanking God for their faith. He's praising God for their dependence on Jesus is what he's doing. He recognizes that faith is a gift that only God can give. Likewise, love for one another was not something that came naturally to this group of believers. You know, we in our, I don't know if it's, I don't think it's even just the American culture, but we as, as human beings tend to gravitate to the people that look like us and that talk like us and that are involved in the same kinds of things. And sometimes we can't help that because our kids are all involved in the same kinds of things. But, you know, we, we tend to gravitate towards people that are just like us. Well, the church isn't full of a bunch of people just like us. It shouldn't be, anyway. We're called, and we talked about this a month or so ago in our Together series, um, but we're called to be a part of a group of people that is, is diverse. Not just in our, our skin tones, but in our hobbies, and in our experience, and in our walk with the Lord. The church doesn't just all look like you, and it doesn't just look like me. We're, really, we're an unusual group. We're a strange bunch of people who vary in in occupation and age and interests and hobbies and backgrounds. And guys, that's how God designed it. And he loves it that way. It's beautiful that way. And so loving someone who's just like us, Jesus says, isn't all that special. If you'll remember in Luke chapter 6, he reminds his followers, the disciples, that if they only love people who love them, then they're just like sinners and tax collectors and Gentiles. He says, what good is that to you? Everybody loves people that like them. What is really a mark of a believer is someone who loves somebody else who's different. And Jesus even takes it a step further in that. He says, somebody who hates you. You, you love somebody that hates you? 
that's the mark of a Christian, of a true believer. And so to genuinely love people different from us is a mark of a true believer. So Paul is saying since faith and since love are gifts that God gives to true believers, he thanks God for hearing about them in the church, hearing about them taking place. Say, I thank God for your love for one another, for your faith in Jesus. And he says he's constantly remembering them in his prayers. Is this because the church that Paul was praying for was perfect? No. Uh, is it because Paul had only heard positive reports coming out of Ephesus? No. We'll see uh, in chapter 4, verse 17 through 23, Paul has this whole list of lustly and fleshly behavior that's all too common in human beings. And unfortunately, it, it's all too common in the church. He talks about lying. He talks about anger. He talks about stealing, corrupting talk, bitterness, wrath, slander, hatred, malice. In chapter 2 and chapter 4, Paul then gives them instruction and encouragement on what the body is supposed to be and to do and to look like. He talks about unity in the body in those chapters. He says, and he uses these terms. And we used a lot of these in our Together series, but I want to use them again because they're important here. Paul calls the church one body, fellow citizens, members of the household of God, a holy temple, a dwelling place for God. He contrasts their former separation with God and from one another with how they're supposed to be living now. 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 4, he says he thanks God because of God's grace given to you in Christ. So he's not even necessarily praising the Ephesians for their wonderful attitudes. He's praising God for his grace that's evidenced in the church. Even with all of its troubles, talking about the, the Corinthian church, even with all of its troubles, Paul says he could thank God for them because he was looking for traces of God's grace in their life. Maybe one of the most encouraging things you can do in the church is to prayerfully look for, identify, and then in some way tell them how you have seen God's grace evidenced in their life. I mean, it is, it is so easy to point out the negatives. I'm as guilty of it as you are. But to look for those Maybe just traces of God's grace in people's life is so in- encouraging. Think back. I-, I pray and hope that there's some situation, that there's been some encounter in your time in a church where someone has done this. They've looked at you and they've said, I can see God working in you. I can see the growth that God is producing in your heart. Tell me more about that. If that's not something that you've ever had someone say to you, let me encourage you. You go say that to someone. It, it could be noticing how somebody uh, treats their wife when they don't know that anybody else is watching. It could be how they discipline their children. It could be how you saw them help a stranger in town. It could be how uh, they interact with the text of Scripture in a Bible study that you're together with them in. It, it, could, just, it could be any number of things, but look for them. Point them out in an encouraging way. In verses 15 and 16 here, in Ephesians 1, Paul is thanking God for these evidences of his grace in their lives. Uh, Specifically, he mentions the faith and the love. 
So we need to look for these things, thank God for these things when we see them in our church family. We can do this without sacrificing truth, but we should be doing it like Paul did. That was thanksgiving. Second thing is intercession. It just means like interceding for people on their behalf. But notice, even as Paul kind of, kind of shift gears here in verse 17, notice that there's still the presence of praise sprinkled in here. He says, the Father of glory. He's pointing out the glory of God. Even in this, Paul can't separate the content of his prayers with the character of the one he's praying to. I don't think he wants to. I don't think we should either. He moves from prayers of thanksgiving into prayers of intercession, the things that he is now going to ask God for regarding the churches in Ephesus. Look at what Paul requests in these verses. He requests a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. And he requests that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. Paul's requesting for illumination, that God would illuminate the scriptures, his word to the people and teach them. Illumination, if we were going to define it, is how we understand scripture. And it only happens as a result of the spirit's work in a person. Guys, Romans three is clear. No one seeks after God on their own. All are bound to sin. We saw that in verse 7 of Ephesians 1. And everyone is dead in their sin and trespasses. We see that at the beginning of chapter 2. We'll talk about next week. The only hope a person has of understanding God or His Word at all is if the Spirit illuminates it for them. And any hope we have of understanding the, the Word is if the Spirit comes in and illuminates it for us. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, apart from the Spirit... It's easier to teach a tiger to be a vegetarian than an unregenerate person to understand the gospel. Paul knew that if God didn't reveal himself to these Christians, to the people here, that they would never know him like they really should. And so Paul is pleading with God to teach them, to open the eyes of their hearts in order that they might know him. That's Paul's prayer. That's how he intercedes for his brothers and sisters. He's asking God on their behalf that he would open the word, illuminate his word to them and teach them. Luke says that Jesus did this kind of a thing. Remember, he he was talking to his disciples and in chapter 24, verse 45, it says that Jesus opened their their minds to understand. In Acts 16, the the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. In Psalm 119.18, the psalmist asks God to open his eyes so that he can contemplate wonderful things from his instruction. This idea of opening, God illuminating and opening these things, it runs throughout Scripture. And now Paul explains why they need to be enlightened by the Spirit. And just stay with me on this because it's it's a run-on sentence, and so it's kind of hard to, to keep track of what he's talking about where. But there's some things here that he asks God for, and now he's explaining why they need to be enlightened. Look at verse 18. That they may know what is the hope to which he has called them. Verse 18 again. That they may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Verse 19. That they may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward those who believe. What have you been called to? 
God calls believers to repentance, to faith, and to salvation. He also calls believers to a new way of living. That means called out. The church means called out ones. So the first thing that, that Paul says why is, is the hope that we have. That's the first thing. Hope we've been called to is not only in our current salvation, which we do take so much hope from, but also in the glory to come. This is one of the ways that we can endure, persevere in the light of difficulties and hardships is because of the glory and the hope that is to come. In the Christ-centered commentary, uh, the author of that, Tony Meredith, says, In eternity past, he called us. We believe in the present, and we look forward to God summing up all things in Christ. Our salvation is marked by massive hope. When we hold out the gospel to people, we are essentially holding out hope to them. And if we're not explaining the gospel in that way, then we need to rethink how we do that. In this way, we have hope of salvation. We have hope in the midst of our current circumstances. And we also have hope of being fully united with God in glory because of Christ. And these are the blessings that Paul is just ramping up here in Ephesians. Paul speaks again about our inheritance. That's the second thing here. Our inheritance. But this time, the wording is a little bit different. It's, it's sort of vague, both in the English and in the Greek. So I want to just do a short kind of word study. I hope you'll stick with me in this. But I want to point out first what he said about an inheritance back in verse 11. So just peek back at verse 11 in chapter 1, how he uses the word inheritance there. He refers to what believers have been given in Christ. Redemption, forgiveness of sin, the riches of God's grace, the guarantee of the Spirit. These are those incredible blessings that are ours in Christ, given by God to believers. So what's the inheritance that he's talking about in verse 18? Is it the same? Is it a little different? Um, Because it kind of sounds like maybe Paul is saying that the saints are God's inheritance. Uh, So let's look at just some contextual clues really quickly to help us out. The word in, in the saints, there in verse 18, it can also mean a couple of different things in the Greek. It can mean with, within, between, or among. And if you've got most any tool, you can even use online tools, you'll see that the Greek word used here is used in different places by Paul and other New Testament authors in different ways. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, I don't know if anybody's using that. I think they get this right. This is how they translate it. They say, uh, his inheritance among the saints. If you look everywhere else that Paul uses this particular Greek word, inheritance or even inherit or heir, he never uses it to describe God inheriting something. He never uses it to describe God as an heir. Okay, I think that's significant. But I think the biggest help actually comes from reading this verse in the King James Bible. So if you've got a King James Bible, check it out. In speaking of God, Paul wants us to see the hope of his calling, the glory of his inheritance, and the greatness of his power. It's the same phrasing that Paul uses each time, and I think that's also significant. It's his calling in the sense that he gives it. It's his power in the sense that he has it and he gives it. And it's his inheritance in the sense that he gives it to us. But where does it all originate? With, with him. Paul 
is consistently using this Greek word, his and in, that way in these two very connected verses. And I th- that, that makes me believe that he's carrying this same meaning, same train of thought each time he uses it. So if we understand it that way, and, and I would say that we should, Paul is talking about the glorious riches that we have in the inheritance that God has laid up for the saints. It's his inheritance in the sense that he gives it to believers. So it's among us. Now, it's absolutely true. Don't get me wrong. It's absolutely true that the church is God's treasured possession. He sent Christ for the church. Don't don't get me wrong here. We are absolutely his inheritance in that sense of reading it. I just don't think that we can make that claim from this text in, in, in particular. Okay, but that truth still rolls through Scripture. Either way, whether you believe it the way that I do, that his inheritance is among the saints or that the saints are his inheritance, what should that produce in us? If you recognize that we are God's inheritance, what would that cause you to do? How would that cause you to live? Wouldn't you recognize your value and worth and desire to live for his glory? And if we have him as our inheritance... If it's that is his inheritance among the saints, then wouldn't we live free from sin, knowing that everything that Christ has done is ours as an inheritance? Either way you want to read this, it should cause the same response in us as a church. Praise, worship. So Paul now petitions, this is that third part of intercession. He petitions God to make his power towards those who believe made known. Just look at the words that Paul uses for power here to describe it. He says, immeasurable greatness, immeasurable greatness, and great might. He's stressing the power that he's referring to here. It's only by God's power that dead sinners become saints that believers can stand and fight in the spiritual battle that Ephesians chapter 6 that we're going to get to later on, that that's referring to. It's only by the grace of God, the power of God, and it's only by His power that believers will be able to arrive safely at home in glory, persevere to the end. How is this power manifested? How is it made known? Well, Paul illustrates it. He points to a specific event in human history. What is it? The resurrection. That's the source of this power in believers. Think about why the resurrection is so important. Among other things, it verifies that Jesus was without sin and really did defeat the curse of sin and death on the cross. It verified that, but it also confirmed that Jesus had conquered death itself. He overcame death by his death. Guys, we also as believers have the confirmation that Jesus has raised us up. Paul will say in chapter 2 here that raised us up and seated us with him in heavenly places. Chapter 2 verse 6 is going to tell us that. Because of the resurrection, you don't have to fear death. Let me just say that again. Because our culture is just inundated and flooded with products and language that causes believers and everyone to fear death and to avoid it at all costs. Now, I'm not proposing anything strange, but I'm just saying because of the resurrection, 
we don't have to fear it. And if you're in a home team, you see Paul communicating that in the first chapter of Philippians. And you've probably read that before. He says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is what? Is gain. He recognizes his job here and that God has a work for him. And so he wants to do that to his glory, but he also knows what's coming. That's gain, brothers and sisters. Because of the resurrection, we don't have to fear death, but because of the resurrection, we know that life, while we live it here, also is just chock full of meaning. Your life has meaning. Because of the resurrection, your life here is not lived in vain. The work that you do for God's glory is not done in vain. Our ability to live for Christ is sure because of the resurrection. He's conquered sin. Also, it gives us hope and power for a life of service to God. Look at this verse with me. Romans eight eleven. Just look at this in context of what we're discussing. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is where? It's in you. It lives in you. Believer, the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. You may have heard that before, but think about its implications in your everyday life. How does that change the way that you address your coworkers? How does the, the power that raised Jesus from the dead living in you, how does it change the way that you talk to your children, your wife or your husband? If you can't think of a way that it changes it, then you need to spend some more time thinking through this because it should impact every area. But the Spirit of God who raised him from the dead, the power that lies there is in you. If that kind of power is part of our inheritance now, why do you worry so much? Why do I doubt so frequently? Why do we fear death the way that we do? Why do we give in to temptation as often as we do? This power is ours to proclaim the gospel. This power is ours to overcome sin daily, to pursue holiness, to fight against the evil one, and to have great faith in a risen Savior. This power produces fruit in a Christian's life. Now, I'm not suggesting that you can attain perfection in this mortal body. That's not what I mean. But I'm absolutely advocating for victorious Christian living through the power of the Spirit. Absolutely. But it's not because of your hard work. It's not because of your effort. It's, it's because of Christ. It's not our spiritual might. It's because of Christ. It's all because of Him. And that's where Paul goes next. It's a beautiful segue. He goes right into the praise of the Son as a rightful ruler of all. That's the third part, praise. Verses 20, the end of 20 through 23. Paul says that God has seated Christ above everything. And he, and he puts a list together. Above all rule. Above all authority above all power, above all dominion, above every name. Now, why do you think Paul harped on that point so heavily here? I mentioned this in our introduction to Ephesians. What was, who was the rule in Paul's day? It was the Roman Empire, complete rule. And in that 
context, in that culture of absolute Roman rule, Paul suggests, he has the audacity to suggest that really Caesar is not the most powerful ruler of all. It's not who's in charge. It's not who's sitting on the throne in Rome. If you'll remember, Ephesus was almost like a cult for the Roman emperor. It's even recorded that they worshipped him. They called Caesar their savior. Whose face was on the currency in Rome? Caesar's. Every part of Roman culture was designed to remind them who was the boss. They were not in control. That Caesar was. And so Paul here, he is putting forth Jesus. He's lifting Christ up above everything else. Jesus is supreme, he's saying. He's lifting him up to that level. But he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say that Jesus is higher than Caesar. He goes a step further and he says he is the supreme ruler of all. Caesar is actually a servant to Jesus. Do do we look at our politicians this way? I'm, I'm fairly certain that they don't view themselves that way. But do we view our politicians as servants of Jesus? Now, they may not know Christ personally. They may not believe. Obviously, some of them don't. And yet, God is still ruler over them, isn't he? Jesus Christ has been raised in power. He's enthroned above all. He's supreme over all. And then Paul lists him as head of the church. So this is where the connection between Christ and the church comes in. Guys, just as... God has given believers an incredible inheritance. He's also given us a supreme leader. The head, Jesus Christ. Now notice, just point this out in relation to what we talked about last week. Notice how only the church is listed as his body. Not all creation, not every person, just the church is listed as the body of Christ. And Paul's going to expand on that relationship later on in Ephesus. But brothers and sisters, I want us to be reminded of this simple thing that you are all aware of, that I think you all have a good grasp on, but just to put it out there, if we need to change the way that we talk about church, then then let's do it, let's work on it, but there's only one head here. There's only one head in the church. There's only one head pastor. There's only one supreme leader, and you're not looking at him right here. It's Jesus. He is the head. He is the head. The church body is supposed to follow him, not me, not some other man. Myself, the elders, we strive to lead well as under shepherds underneath the Lord Jesus. But we're gonna, we're gonna mess it up sometimes. That doesn't excuse that, but it's gonna happen. We desire to lead in humility. And strength as we stand on the word of God alone. And we want to love you enough to tell you the truth. But we're not the leader that you should be looking to, to meet all of your needs. So when we collectively say Jesus is Lord, we're saying that no one else is. It was, it was that way for the Christians in Ephesus. When they said Jesus is Lord, essentially they were saying that Caesar is not. When we say Jesus is Lord, we're saying, I'm not don't we? We're saying, I'm not Lord, you are. They're not Lord, you are. That's who we point to as a supreme head. 
Paul says that Christ fills all in all. It's that's how he finishes this chapter. He fills all in all. The church, filled up by Christ, then goes, as we see Jesus command us in Matthew 28, we go and fill the rest of his creation as representatives. As his representatives. Ambassadors. And so, if Jesus fills all the church, then that's the only thing that can be in it, right? Think about that. Just the concept of filling something. If you have a glass that's half full of vinegar and you fill it with enough water, where does the vinegar go? Out of the cup. All that's left is the water. If Christ is said to fill all of the church, then our pride can't be here. Then our lies can't be here and remain. Nothing else can be here, only Jesus. And if Jesus is the only thing then that's what's going to come out of the church too, isn't it? If he fills all and he's in all, Jesus comes out. That's how we are his ambassadors in the world. We say, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Christ has so identified himself with the church that it's said to be his very body. I think back to how Adam described Eve in the garden. He said, she's now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Think about this. Eve would not be if she was not part of Adam. The church would not be if we are not part of Christ. We are flesh of his flesh in that way. So what does this mean for us as a church? I I want us to think through this. And specifically, first off, I want to say that it means that we are totally dependent on Him. That means that we're not going to seek after the latest church growth model to bust our doors open with people filling in here. Now, if that were to happen by us preaching the gospel faithfully, praise God. But we're not going to go seek some outside worldly approach to evangelism. Because we are dependent on Jesus. We're not dependent on a pastor. Guys, we're not dependent on a convention. We're not dependent on a curriculum. Those things can be helpful when rightly applied. But what makes us a church is that we are completely reliant on Jesus Christ as our leader. As the head. What makes us fulfilled, what makes us victorious, what makes us special or helpful or significant or anything is nothing else but our relationship with Jesus, with Him. He fills the church with His presence. So, how do we apply this? We're going to follow through with this today with just a couple of application questions. Do we pray like Paul? Think about just this week and the time that you've spent in prayer. What did that look like? Did it look like this at all? Was the structure thanksgiving? Was was part of it intercession? Was part of it praise? Don't get stuck in the order. Don't get stuck on the length of how long you spend in one or the other. But, But do we pray like this? Or do we usually just come with this list of wants and needs? God wants to hear those things. He blesses us and He heals and He restores and He saves. But that's not all that He wants to hear from His people. Paul's example alone should be enough to impact our own prayer life here. 
Secondly, do you look for evidences of God's grace in others? If that's a new concept to you, I'd encourage you, start doing it today. If you're married and your wife is a believer, start looking for evidences of God's grace in their life. Lastly, how does a fresh view of Jesus' power and authority affect your life today? Are you seeing him as almighty, able to give refuge in the storm or provide strength for overcoming sin day after day? Is that how we see the power that we have in Christ? Man, if we truly believed Jesus was everything that this text says he is. It says that he is above all rule, all authority, all dominion, all power, every name. If we really believed that, wouldn't we have to stop worrying about the things that we worry about and just trust him? Our trust goes to a lot of different places that it shouldn't. But Jesus is worthy of it. How would living with this in our minds affect us each day? How would it affect your life? How would it affect those around you if you lived this way? Brothers and sisters, Jesus is all of this and more. And he's worthy of our trust and he's worthy of our praise. The spiritual blessings that we have in this life and the life to come, they're not found in the stuff that this world has to offer. They're found in him. They're found in Jesus Christ. But they're only for those who believe. That was made clear last week. All of these blessings in Christ are are there, abundantly given, freely given for everyone who believes. So I guess all of this boils down to the question, do you believe? If that's what it takes, do you believe? If you don't, you need to know that it just takes the simple recognition that you can't be good enough on your own, in your own strength, to be saved from your sin. And you cannot get real forgiveness any other way but through Jesus. If the eyes of your heart have been enlightened by the gospel through the Spirit, will you pray like Paul with thankfulness, intercession, and praise? Will you look for glimpses of grace in other believers' lives? Will you live differently knowing that He is in all and He fills all? Practical application, He fills your family. If Christ is the head, he fills your family. He fills your marriage. He fills your workplace. He fills your struggles. He fills the dark places of your heart that you don't want anybody else to see. He fills all. Your hurts, your insecurities. Guys, he's already over all of these things in your life. We just haven't recognized it. We just haven't put him there in our own minds and hearts. He's over them all already, but I got to tell you, and I think you probably know this to some degree like me, that when we do this, when we put him, when we recognize and exalt him as the one who fills all and in all, something just incredibly freeing happens, doesn't it? Something incredibly freeing happens when we recognize this truth and then live in the light of it. Are we going to go out and live this way? Those who do believe, this is our challenge today. This is my challenge today. Am I going to go out and believe and live that Christ is in all and is ruler over all? Because I got to tell you, I think my life is going to look different if I believe that and if I live it out. If you don't believe, I would encourage you to keep asking questions. Keep seeking truth. God will show you 
through His Spirit what the truth is. And if you want a hand in that journey, please come and talk to one of us. And we'd love to sit down with you and talk about the gospel. Talk about the forgiveness that we have in Christ. Talk about the blessings that are there for those who believe. Believer, if you do know this, what's your life going to look like in light of it? That's what I want us to think through as we pray today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have, you've seen through the years, through the generations, through the centuries, what happens when believers truly live out this way. They truly live with the power of the Spirit recognizing you as the head. I don't know how often we see that lived out today. And so for myself and my brothers and sisters who are here in Christ, who believe, Lord, I pray that you would make this happen. Remind us of your ultimate authority and rule in our lives, that we would go and live as free people. And Lord, for those who don't believe just yet, God, I pray that you would impress on them not only the weight of their sin, but also the freedom that comes and the forgiveness that we find in Christ. Change our prayers through this text this morning. Lord, change the way that I pray based on what we see Paul pray for here, knowing that the God who raised Christ from the dead is able and is listening to act in this world on our behalf. We thank you for this incredible knowledge and the incredible privilege of being able to speak these words to the Creator. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.